John chapter 6. If you're visiting with us, my name's uh, Michael Matala. I'm privileged to serve as the lead pastor here at Newbury Church. We're so glad that you're visiting with us. We're in the middle uh, of a series through the book of John. This year, we're not doing an Advent series. We will have kind of a special service on Christmas Eve. Pastor Jesse's going to be bringing the word that Sunday. Um, but we're continuing on through the book of John, a series that we've entitled That You Might Believe. And this morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter, um, towards the very end through, through 71 there. Uh, but before we do that, while you're turning there, I want to take... Uh, just a quick moment of pastoral privilege and just uh, I want to invite you to join me in prayer for this, this morning. So we've had this past week a lot of members of New Breed who have experienced loss in their life. Um, so I know that Pastor Michael and Tessa lost a family member. I know that Megan and Jesse lost a family member. I know that Sarah recently lost a family member. And I, I am forgetting one more. And the walls. Jonathan and Jenna recently lost a family member. So all within, you know, a week or so's time. And so I know that's been really heavy for a lot of our folks. And so I just want to invite you, just, we're just going to take a moment and we're just going to pray for them and pray for their families um, that God would provide a peace and a comfort for them. So let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, God, we, we do come this morning with an incredible hope in Jesus a hope of life, a hope of resurrection, a hope of something better than what we often experience in the day in and day out grind of life, Lord. And God, we know that one of the devastating realities of this broken world is that this is a world where we still experience death and family members still pass away, Lord. And that's painful and that's hard. God, we, we know and, and, and we proclaim, we do believe. I know it's the common sentiment that death is natural, but we know that death is unnatural. It is not the way you intended this to go. But God, we find great hope in our crucified and risen Savior, Lord. And so we pray for our covenant family members who have experienced loss, Lord. We pray that they would know in a very real sense that you are near to the brokenhearted. God, that you have never faltered, you have never failed, you have never left us. And I pray that those families would know that. Lord, I pray that even through the testimony of those families, Lord, that as they interact with their families, if there are people who don't know you, that they would just radiate the hope that we have in Jesus. So God, we just ask that you would give comfort and grace, that you would give peace in this difficult time, in the midst of a season that's already very hectic. God, we just pray that you'd be very near to those families. And we give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I almost said you may be seated, but you may stand. Uh, we're going to look at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. If you're able, stand. It's going to be a little bit longer of a reading, but that's all right. It's God's word. We want to hear it. Amen. So we're going to look at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. Hear, <clears throat> hear the word of the Lord. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me 
The one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Therefore, the Jews started, to, started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give you or give for the life of the world is my flesh. And at that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now verse 60, therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, now catch that, when many of his disciples heard this, they said this teaching is, is hard. Who can accept it? And Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the 12, because he was going to betray him. I know that was a lot, but here's the idea I want us to talk about this morning. I'm going to stick with Jesus. I'm going to stick with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. (laughs) 
I'm going to stick with Jesus. Some of you may know this name. He's an American civil rights activist, writer, political advisor. His name's James Howard Meredith. And James Howard Meredith was born in uh, Kosciuszko, Mississippi in 1933. During his early life, he excelled in school. He completed his 11th grade studies uh, at segregated uh, Adela County Training School. And then he went on and completed his 12th grade, his final year of high school at Gibbs High School in St. Petersburg, Florida. After high school, Meredith decided to go and serve nine years in the United States Air Force. After completing his career, Meredith decided that he wanted to go back to school. He'd always had an app for school. He liked school. He wanted to go back. And so he completed his first two years of college at Jackson State University, now recognized as an HBCU, Historic Black College and University. And he excelled during those two years at school. And so Meredith decided for his final year to make a change. You see, in 1961, President John F. Kennedy gave a speech that inspired Meredith the very next day to apply to the University of Mississippi, or Ole Miss. Now, at this point, Ole Miss was an entirely white university. But again, Meredith, being an African-American man, was inspired by the speech and said, I'm going to apply to the University of Mississippi. Again, at the time, Ole Miss was an entirely white university, and despite the fact of what the Supreme Court had ruled in Brown versus the Board of Education, and despite his incredible military career, and despite his his academic accolades, the schools rejected Meredith. They actually rejected him multiple times for admission. Over the course of the next year, Meredith would actually bring the university to court And that case would eventually reach the Supreme Court of the United States where the court would rule in favor of Mr. Meredith. On September 13th, going somewhere, stick with me, 1962, the district court entered an injunction directing uh, the members of the Board of Trustees of Old Miss and the officials of the university to register him as a school. So basically the court said, you have to do this. Now, when that injunction came, the Democratic governor of Mississippi, Ross Barnett, I'm throwing names out and everything, responding to the injunction declared no school will ever be integrated in Mississippi while I'm the governor. Well, the state legislator quickly created a plan. They passed a law that would deny admission to any person who has, quote, a crime of moral turpitude against him or who has been convicted of any felony offense and not pardon. Same day that became law, Meredith was somehow arrested and accused falsely, convicted of false voter registration in Jackson County. The charge didn't stick. It was a trumped-up charge, and eventually the Attorney General of the United States called the governor of Mississippi. And eventually, the governor reluctantly agreed to allow Meredith to register, but unfortunately, that wasn't the end of the ordeal. The admission of James Meredith sparked a riot at Old Old Miss. It actually became the largest ever invocation of the Insurrection Act in the United States where President Kennedy had to send 31,000 American servicemen to stop the violence and to keep the peace in Mississippi. A few days later, Meredith, escorted by armed military, went to enroll in the university. He spent his final year there. During that time... Students harassed Meredith. According to eyewitnesses, students living in Meredith's dorm would bounce basketballs on the floor just above his room through all hours of the night. They planned out shifts to keep him awake. 
When Meredith walked into the cafeteria for meals, the students eating would turn their backs. If Meredith sat at a table with other students, all of whom were white, the students would immediately get up and go to another table. And he persisted through this harassment and extreme isolation to graduate on August 18, 1963 with a degree in political science. He graduated with accolades. Now Meredith was asked while going through all of this, why stick with this? Why do this in the first place? Why go through all of this when you have other options available to you? And this was Meredith's response. I love it. He says, quote, I believed and I believe now that I have a divine responsibility. I am familiar with the probable difficulties involved in such a move as I am undertaking and I am fully prepared to pursue it all or pursue all, it all the way to the degree from the University of Mississippi. See, here's what Meredith understood. Here's what he's saying. There come some times when following God's leading will be very difficult. There are some times when trusting in his direction will inevitably lead to trial and to trouble. But what Meredith was saying in that statement is that God has called me to do this. And if God is in it, no matter how hard it gets, where else am I going to go? In other words, he is making a profound declaration of faith that I'd rather be with God in the midst of difficulty than to be without him in comfort. Oh, church, I'd rather be with God in the midst of difficulty than to be without him in comfort. This morning, church, I want to tell you that for every one of us, following Jesus will not always be easy. There will come some times when the risk is great. There will come some times when the trouble is real. There will be things Jesus calls you to do that if we're honest, they're difficult to comprehend and even more challenging to walk out in our lives. And some of you don't need me to tell you any of this because you have experienced some of that. Or maybe you're experiencing it now where following Jesus doesn't seem easy, comfortable, or let's be honest, even the most rational thing to do. And I'll just tell you, if you haven't been in that place yet, just keep walking with Jesus a little bit and you'll find out. There will come moments when this faith is not easy. And in those moments, there are two options, only two. Trust Jesus or walk away. And in this very situation, as we close out John chapter 6, it's that very situation that the disciples of Jesus, as well as all of those who are listening, find themselves in as we come to the close. Jesus is offering a teaching that for many is a difficult teaching. For some, it's difficult to understand. For some, it's difficult to process. And for some, it's difficult for them to walk it out. And we see both of these responses. From the majority, we see in verse 66, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Don't lose the weight of that. Jesus is fully, in his humanity, he is fully human. And in his divinity, he is fully divine. But don't miss the humanity of Jesus in this. These people that you thought were your disciples, though he knew what was in them, the heartbreak of them walking away as he proclaims truth to them. But then on the opposite side, Peter's declaration in verse 68, after Jesus asked the twelve, Right? If they're going to, to leave as well, Peter declares, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words to eternal life. And what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack the remainder of Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6. I want to explore these responses of the people listening, and hopefully I want to pull out some nuggets of application along the way. I'm just going to tell you up front, 
This sermon is going to be a lot of teaching, uh, which is good, right? I, I love the teaching part of it. I'm going to try to pull some applications out. We'll get a little excited along the way. But by and large, I just need you to understand what it is that Jesus is teaching. But a second disclaimer on the front end. John chapter 6 is a very difficult passage of Scripture, and we can acknowledge that. In my opinion, my humble opinion, barring the book of Revelation, I think that John chapter 6 is the most complex and difficult chapter in the New Testament. And the reason for it is because we can't forget that Jesus is just not, he's not merely giving part of a doctrine that we can later understand as we consider the whole counsel of God's will. What I mean for that is a lot of people want to look back at John chapter 6 and think first of, okay, Jesus is telling me how to understand sovereignty, right? That, that the ones that God gives me, those are the only ones who can come. And some look and say, well, but on the other side of that, right, Jesus is saying you have the responsibility to believe. Some people want to try to develop a doctrine of God's sovereignty out of John chapter 6. And that's cool. We can look at John chapter 6 for that. Some people want to develop their full understanding of the Lord's Supper out of John chapter 6. And there are implications. And that's cool. We want to look at that. But what we have to understand is Jesus isn't just teaching teaching them thinking of us later. He's thinking of them in that moment. He's teaching real people in a context who can't see what we can see on this side of the cross. And so what makes it so difficult is that we have to try to flesh out, specifically in a Jewish context, what in the world Jesus is saying. We got to flesh it out, no pun intended. If you don't get that, you'll get it in a few verses. Right? Jesus wasn't just teaching this for us to look back on. He was not teaching in spite of the crowds that were there. He's teaching them. So it had to mean something for them in the moment. All of this imagery that Jesus is using. Having not experienced the cross yet and not experienced the, uh, the resurrection while anticipating their coming. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to spend, I said in my notes a few minutes, but let's call it what it is. It's going to be basically the whole sermon. Uh, I want to spend some time trying to unpack what Jesus is saying in the context of how the Jewish listeners would have understood it. And so what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to do a little bit of biblical theology. Y'all know what biblical theology is? Some of you do, some of you don't. So, so a couple of ways we do theology, right? We got systematic theology. This is a really crude way of saying it, like kind of boiled down. But at the end of the day, what systematic theology is, is just taking a bunch of ideas and then all the verses that the Bible says about it, right? Like building an idea. So we're looking at creation, everything the Bible says about creation. We're looking at sovereignty, providence, right? Salvation, everything God says about those things. We're kind of isolating doctrines and fleshing them out. But what biblical theology is, and it's my favorite. Biblical theology is probably one of my favorite things ever, except for Jesus my wife, you all. Okay, it's not one of my favorite things ever, but I really like biblical theology. What biblical theology is, right, is it's tracing the threads through Scripture of seeing how this isn't a bunch of jumbled up stories, but God is telling one magnificent, beautiful story. Revelation matters to Genesis, right? There's some threads, and biblical theology is trying to pull on those threads and seeing the beauty and the majesty of the full counsel of God's Word. So we're going to do that, um, I know we've already talked uh, over the past couple of weeks a lot about the imagery, but we're going to kind of flesh all that out again, hopefully come to a, a full understanding of John chapter 6, so for none of you will it ever be a complicated chapter of Scripture again. Amen? Okay. All right. So the context, right, of this story actually begins at the beginning of chapter 6. If you remember, verse 4 tells us, that it's around the Passover festival. So, so the Jews, Jesus, the people who are listening, they all have Passover on their mind. They're thinking about Passover. They're thinking about the Exodus. 
And then Jesus performs two miracles. Do you remember? Uh, he feeds the multitudes and then he walks on water. And these two events, again, are in, they intentionally remind the people of the Exodus account because we talked about how for the Jewish observance of Passover, it was more than simply reflecting on the angel of death. That's kind of what it's named over with Passover when the angel of death passed over for those who had the blood on the doorpost. But when the Jews celebrated Passover, they were celebrating more than just that event. They were celebrating the entirety of the Exodus story. They were celebrating and remembering when, when, when God provided a way when there was no way and he showed his sovereignty over the sea, right? They celebrate when God showed his, his divine provision and caused manna to come down from heaven and for 40 years he fed them supernaturally in the wilderness, right? They, they, they celebrate at Passover the institution of the covenant at Sinai when Moses goes up and he gets the law and hears that, 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 that God will be their God and that, that they can be his people, right? So they recognize the entirety of the Exodus account. And, and, and so what Jesus is doing Right? We've talked about this. To a very real degree, he's reenacting the Exodus. And I don't want you to miss this. The people know what he's doing. Right? Like for us, we might have been like, man, that's really cool to see. They knew exactly what he was doing. That's why John tells us in John 6, 14, when the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. The prophet that they're talking about is the one mentioned in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. Right? And I want you to pay close attention to, to what Deuteronomy 18 says. So this is Moses speaking, and this is what he says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your own brothers, and you must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. And then the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. So God's now talking to Moses. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell everything that I command him. Now, I want to offer a point of clarity. I've said this over the past couple of weeks. I've pointed out that the people missed what Jesus was trying to tell them. They wanted a new Moses. They wanted a new Exodus. And there was nothing wrong with them wanting those things because the Bible points to that, that there will be a new Moses. There will be a new Exodus. Jesus knew that he was the Moses figure of Deuteronomy 18, that he was the one leading the new exodus, that he was inaugurating a new covenant. And like, just like Moses inaugurated the old covenant, Jesus is, if you're like, man, what's he talking about? Here it is. Jesus is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. So the problem wasn't that they misunderstood Jesus as this promised Moses figure. The problem was they misunderstood what he was going to do. They saw the new Moses as another deliverer from the physical struggles that they were facing, right? We see that in their desire for bread in Jesus' statement in verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Jesus is calling them out. You want the physical stuff, but I'm focused on the spiritual. They were focused purely on the physical. And we see it even in the first verses of our text that we just read, right? In verses 35 through 40, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever 
be hungry and no one who, who believes in me will ever thirst again. Pause. We talked about this last week. That's a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst that Jesus is promising to fulfill. He says, but as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. So what did they not believe? They, it wasn't that they didn't believe he was the Moses figure. It's that they didn't believe why the Moses figure was coming. You've seen me and you do not believe. He says, everything the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do, the, do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father. You ever want to know what God's, life is, what God's will is for you? Here it is, right here. This is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and that I will raise him up on the last day. So even in these verses, Jesus makes clear that his focus is not at this moment on physical deliverance. He's focused on spiritual deliverance. He's focused on resurrection and eternal life. So again, and I know some of this is a recap, but it's good. Jesus is not offering them a way out from Rome. Jesus is declaring a way out from death. That's why I said a few weeks ago, they wanted another Moses who would provide physical deliverance, but Jesus is declaring, yeah, I'm that Moses, but you also need a better lamb. Yeah, I'm the better Moses, but you also need better bread. He's saying, I am the deliverance provided by God the Father. I am the provision offered by God the Father. And what he's declaring is that he's going to establish a better covenant, a new covenant, not established in the blood of bulls and goats, but established through his very sacrifice. Now, don't miss the weight of all this. In this, Jesus is declaring that he is proof of the faithfulness of God, that Jesus is fulfilling all of the promises of God in the Old Testament, right? It's a beautiful picture that Jesus is giving. But again, this isn't what they wanted. We see them once again thinking with physical eyes in verses 41 and 42. Therefore, the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, here it is, physical eyes, earthly eyes. Isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I've come down from heaven? What they missed is the very thing that we celebrate this time of year. That Jesus is no mere mortal. That yes, Mary was his mother, but God was his father. That he was born of a virgin to fulfill the prophecies of old. Because Jesus in his humanity is fully human. And Jesus in his divinity is fully divine. Jesus is positioned to be the sufficient savior for humanity. And they missed it. Not primarily a savior from dictatorial governments, unjust treatments, and oppressive, oppressive regimes. Though all of that is coming one day but that Jesus is sufficient to save us from sin, death, and the grave. And they didn't see this as their greatest need. Now, I know we've talked about it, and I just have to remind you again. Please hear me. Jesus will never look glorious to us until we recognize that we have a need that our resources, that our ingenuity, that our intellect, and that our abilities can't meet. No, we've got to get that. Jesus will never look glorious to us 
until we realize that we have a need that nothing we possess can meet. See, I think that's part of the reason they walked away. Now, I know in, in the divine sovereignty of God's promises, everything we have comes from him. But what the people understood is that we want bread. That's our need. You won't meet it. We can meet it another way. We'll walk away. See, when we think our need is so weak that we can meet it without Jesus, Jesus will never actually look glorious to us. We have a need that only Jesus is sufficient to meet. And the fact that he is even willing to meet that need ought to cause us to praise God who has been so kind to us. So the Jews are grumbling and they say, how is this Jesus, the son of Joseph, going to say that he came down from heaven? And so look at Jesus' response in verses 43 through 46. Jesus answered them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. So we have to understand what Jesus is claiming here. This is a big claim. First, Jesus quotes from the prophets, right? So these are some of the threads I want you to see. He's quoting from the prophets, specifically Isaiah and Jeremiah, who prophesy that a sign of the new covenant, stick with me, we're getting somewhere with all of this, a sign of the new covenant will be that humanity will be taught by God himself. That's a sign of the new covenant. So let me, let me read them to you. First, Isaiah 54, verse 13. And the context of this is Isaiah prophesying about the future glory of Israel. And he says in verse 13, then all your children will be taught by the Lord and their prosperity will be great. But maybe the more common one, the clearer one is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. So again, speaking of the new covenant that God will establish, this is what Jeremiah records. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. A new covenant. And this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them up by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke even though I am their master. The Lord's de declaration. Now pay attention to this. Instead, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother say, knowing the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least to the greatest of them, this is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. So Jesus, making this statement in verse 45 about being taught by God, then he says, everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Okay, but watch this, verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Why is this important? Well, go back to the end of Deuteronomy, okay? The end of the Torah. Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 and 11. Right? God has already promised that another Moses would come, and the people are looking, and they're like, where is this Moses? And this is what they write. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to his land. So Moses, who was, who was the picture of the prophet in Deuteronomy 18, right, the precursor to the better prophet and better deliverer, was distinguished from the rest of the people because the Lord knew him face to face. But here's the thing. 
Moses never actually saw God face to face. He tried. You remember the story in Exodus 33? I love that story. I mean, Moses, you know, he's, he knows that like him and God are tight. They're talking. He's given the law. I don't know if he's got a little bold. He's like, man, let me press, let me press the boundaries of this relationship. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Let me, let me see how close I can get. And so he says, hey, God, do me a favor. Let me see your glory. I can, I can picture God, right? Come on, man. But he says, I can't do that, Moses. Because if you see not my glory, my face you will surely die. He says, so here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass by. When I get by, I'm going to tell you to look, and you can look at my back. And Moses saw enough of the goodness of God by staring at the back of the Father that he was undone. But what Jesus is claiming in verse 46 is not simply that he's the new Moses figure, but that he's the better Moses. Why? Because he has seen God face to face. He is the one who God didn't come down to meet Jesus. He came down from heaven. Jesus did after being in the very presence of the Father. And again, I know this is a lot, but, a lot, but I'm taking it somewhere. Just, just stick with me. There, there's intentionality. This is how the Jews would have understood some of this. Like Jesus is doing all this for a reason, but Jesus continues in verse 47, and this is where it starts to get real dicey for Jesus. He says, truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. He said that a few times. We're good with that. We can rock with that. He says, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and they died. We've talked about that. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now here's where it gets dicey for Jesus. He says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So once again, though, Jesus is actually going back to the wilderness when he makes that declaration. He's going back to when God gave manna. And what he's doing is he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, listen, as good as the manna was, I'm better. And here's why. It's a simple argument. Your ancestors experienced the provision of God in the wilderness, but it wasn't a complete provision. How do we know? Because they ate the manna. And they still died. It was enough to sustain them in the wilderness, but it was not enough to prevent the inevitable because sin brings death. But then Jesus says, there's a new bread that the Father is offering. It's me. I am the provision of the Father. Me being the bread of life. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. But again, here's the statement that ultimately begins to push so many away. Like people were, they were grumbling. They were frustrated, but nobody had walked away. But then he makes this argument, right? Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from the Father. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, I want to be clear. When Jesus talks about his flesh, he's actually still using wilderness imagery. Because if you remember God providing manna, you'll remember that manna wasn't all that God provided. Let me read it to you. Exodus 16, verse 8. Moses said, this will happen. And the Lord gives you meat to eat in the morning, literally translated flesh to eat in the morning, or I'm sorry, eat in the evening, and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. So what happened during the wilderness for 40 years was not just that manna showed up every morning. 
It's that flesh showed up every night. So again, go back to the feeding of the 5,000 earlier in the chapter. It's not only significant that Jesus fed them with bread. It's also significant that he fed them with fish or flesh because he is reenacting the Passover before he recreates it. Now, here's the question we should be asking. Okay, well, how is it then we've gotten all that, that Jesus is actually going to recreate the Passover? How is it that this new covenant will come to pass? Well, he answers that. Not by merely providing provision, but by being provision. Look again at verses 53 through 58. So Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourself. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Now I want to try to quickly unpack this because this section of Scripture specifically is one that is highly debated and has led to many good and not so good ideas. I'm not going to tell you which one's which. I'm just going to teach it the way I understand it. Here is what Jesus is not saying. He is not telling people to literally eat his physical body and to drink his physical blood. There are clues to that in the text. One of them being, he makes a statement a few verses later that of what value is the flesh, speaking of earthly flesh. But there's actually a subtle shift in language that's very significant for us understanding this passage. If you notice in verse 53, you might have missed it on the first reading. Jesus doesn't refer to himself in the first person. It actually comes much later. Not at first, though. So in other words, in verse 53, he does not say, truly I tell you, unless you eat my flesh. What he says in verse 53 is, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. So we know we've already established from earlier in John. If you missed that sermon, go back and listen to it. I don't know which one it is, so you have to listen to all 13 of them, all right? But he switches and doesn't say initially eat my flesh. He says eat the flesh of the Son of Man, third person. Now, if you remember to what we talked about, that's a designation for Jesus that comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Threads, okay? I continued watching. This is Daniel 7, 13, 14. I continued watching. Daniel's having a vision in, in the night visions, and suddenly one like the Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language could serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So the Son of Man refers to a heavenly king. I think Brant Petrie is correct when he argues this. Above all, this is a quote from him, Jesus' emphasis on the flesh of the Son of Man emphasizes that he is not speaking about cannibalizing earthly flesh. Praise, praise God, that's weird, okay? We can say it. Praise God, that's weird. He's not saying literally eating someone's flesh and drinking some blood, okay? 
But here's the quote. Instead, the meal he will give is not the physical flesh of the earthly Jesus, but the spirit-filled flesh and blood of the heavenly Son of Man. In other words, he writes, the heavenly Son of Man will give heavenly rather than ordinary food and drink. And so then, after Jesus makes that initial statement, he changes from using the third person, son of man, to the first person saying, my flesh. Not arguing that you have to eat my physical flesh, but revealing that he is the son of man that he just mentioned. So in essence, what Jesus is declaring is that in order to experience this eternal life, we have to feast on the spiritual flesh and the spiritual blood of Jesus. That is the picture that we paint every Sunday morning when we come to the table. We participate, remember the Lord's Supper as a way of reflecting on the spiritual flesh, the spiritual blood, but also in preparation for a better feast. So then the question becomes this, probably one of the most important questions we could ask. Okay, we're rocking with you on this, Michael. Like, we agree. Hypothetically, you don't have to. I'm just saying. I'm, prob I'm probably right. But the question then becomes, how do we do this? How do we actually feast? Because if we get all the theology right, but we miss that, we've missed the whole point. How do we do it? Well, that's the question that Jesus has been trying to answer through the entire chapter. Genesis 6, or Genesis, John 6, verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he has sent. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. John 6, 40, for this is the will of the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, 47, truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. Feasting comes through believing and clinging to the truth that Jesus is who he says he is, and he has done what he said that he would do. But this feasting imagery I mentioned, I don't really have time to unpack it. It's not simply Jesus looking back. It's, always, it's also looking forward as well. You can do your own homework. I don't have time to talk about the bread of the presence that showed up when Moses met with the Father, which was a picture of a greater feast in the presence of the Father to come. All of this imagery matters. But I have to make sure you understand what it is that Jesus is offering when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood because what Jesus is offering is actually a little bit more difficult than we might realize you see that even from the response of many of the disciples who heard Jesus teaching right that's again verse 60 and 63 therefore many of his disciples heard this and they said this teaching is hard who can accept it Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this asked them does this offend you right and for many they could not get over the picture that Jesus was painting on feasting on his flesh and drinking his blood. And you see, somewhat for good reason, because for the Jew, the concept of eating flesh and drinking blood was a disgusting picture. Because for many, they saw it rightly as a violation of the law. Because in the Levitical law, you're actually prohibited from drinking blood. Here's what Leviticus 17, 10 through 12 says. Anyone from the house of Israel or, so it's not just Israel, or from the, from the aliens who reside among you. So it's not just Israelites. Anybody who's even dwelling with you says who eats any blood. God says, I will turn against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature, here's the rationale, for the life of the creature is in the blood. And I have appointed 
Oh, I wish I could preach it like I want to, but okay. So for the life of the creature is in the blood. And he says, and I've appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for the lives since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you or no alien who resides among you may eat blood. But Jesus isn't ignoring this. He actually knows this and still intentionally makes that statement. Let me just read you a quote. Um, this is from uh, Petrie as well. Sometimes people are just smarter than you and you can try to put it in your own words and it doesn't sound nearly as good. So let me just read it to you. He says, on the one hand, Leviticus raises, that passage we just read, a seemingly insurmountable difficulty. How can Jesus say that his blood must be drunk when the Jewish scripture explicitly forbids the Israel people to drink the blood of an animal? But on the other hand, when we notice that Jesus declares that those who do not drink his blood have no life in them, a possible solution emerges. And here's what this author says. By linking the drinking of his blood to receiving life, it seems that the very reason the Mosaic Torah forbids drinking animal blood is the same reason Jesus actually commands his followers to drink the blood of the Son of the Man. For the life is in the blood, and it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of its life. In other words, Jesus' declaration about drinking the blood of the Son of Man seems to presuppose the Torah's teaching that the life of the flesh is in the blood and that the blood atones for sin. So here's what he's saying, right? The blood of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the life of the animal, you didn't need it in you. You needed it shed and spread on the altar to atone for you. But what Jesus is saying is something different. He's saying, yeah, yeah, not only do you need to be covered by my blood, but you need my very life inside of you because no one has life apart from me. And Paul says it just like this, if this is simpler for you. 2 Corinthians 4.10, we always carry around the death of Jesus in our bodies so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. So Jesus knew the law and he knew exactly what he was saying. But it was hard for them to accept. Now, before I move on, I'm going to give you, I know we got to get out of here. We got food to eat and all that stuff. Y'all brought food, right? Okay. Before we move on, let me say this. I know that's a lot of jumping back and forth. And we looked at the prophets. We looked at Leviticus. We looked at Deuteronomy. We looked at Exodus. Maybe you don't get as fired up about biblical theology as me and Carlos do, okay? Maybe you don't get as fired up. I told Carlos this morning, I said, brother, it's like all biblical theology. And he got so excited. But let me at least offer this for your consideration as we consider the threads of Scripture. If nothing else, the threads of Scripture that we see riddled throughout the Bible, what we see in Scripture here ought to at least make us marvel at the Word of God. The complexity of the, these passages like this convince me actually all the more of the validity of the Bible. Here's how I know it's true. Y'all got four pastors at New Breed. We can barely get along sometimes, just being honest. We love each other, but we got disagreements. And you telling me that 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years were able to make something this precise with some of them having never read what the other ones wrote, you trying to tell me that we made this up? Listen, God is amazing. And the complexity of this leads me to wonder. I'm not scared of it. I don't understand all of it. But sometimes I just throw my hands and say, God, you had to have done this. Because I've read some good authors, but none of them have ever read, written anything like this. So Jesus teaches all of this. But it was hard teaching for them. Here's why it was hard. And I want to be clear on this. For some, they couldn't get over the imagery. 
it was just too much. They were thinking through earthly eyes and missed the spiritual significance. That Jesus isn't calling us to cannibalism. But for others, I genuinely believe, and I think I could make a case from Scripture later on in the book of John, I think that there were people who knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And they still decided they didn't want it. Because here's the truth of the matter. Being a genuine follower of Jesus and feasting on his life is more difficult than we realize. So in other words, having his life in you does not just mean you get the blessings of Jesus. It doesn't simply mean you get the miracles of Jesus. It also means you take the suffering of Jesus. It means you get the ridicule of Jesus. It means that you die daily to live for him because it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I think there were people who knew exactly what Jesus is offering and were probably more faithful than some people sitting in churches today. At least they acknowledge, I don't want it. I don't want to play the game. I don't want to act like I'm a follower of his. I don't want that. For many of Jesus' disciples, the cost of actually getting Jesus was too much. Because as Jesus had already pointed out, many of them just wanted the physical blessings. Skip all that trial stuff. Skip all that hardship, that suffering, the pain that comes with walking faithfully with Jesus. We don't want it, they said. And church, I just have to warn you. Following Jesus is not an easy task. That's why Jesus says, yo, 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 before you come to me, Count the cost. Count the cost. And I have to also warn you, one of the most dangerous things is that when Jesus doesn't fit your definition of who you think he should be, and when Jesus doesn't fulfill your expectation to do what you want, there is a real temptation. Make no mistake about it. Rather than change our definition and expectation to walk away. And I believe, and I say this humbly, praying that we're not there, but I believe that the reason that some of us get so frustrated with Jesus is not because he has failed to be who he said he would be or that he has failed to do what he said he would do. I think the reason we get so frustrated with Jesus is because he has failed to be who we say he should be and to do what we think he should do. And when that happens, there is a temptation, just like for some of his disciples, to walk away. But I want to remind you this morning that if we learn anything from this passage, it's that Jesus knows what we need better than we ever could. Even though many disciples walked away, some understood and believed this truth. And I love how the chapter ends. Look with me. We're going to bring it to a close. I know I'm going a little long. I'm just making that food taste better for you. Look, at, look with me at the beginning there in verse 67. I love this ending. So Jesus said to the twelve, Right, so we know that there were more disciples than just the 12 disciples. A lot of those left, but he looks at his 12, his inner circle, and he says, I can, I can feel the pain in Jesus' voice. You don't want to go away too, do you? I mean, I can see the broken heart of our Savior who longs that people would believe in him and watches as disciples walk away. And he says, do you want to go too? And I think that Simon Peter's words probably brought tears to Jesus' eyes when he says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You know what I love about this? Nowhere does it say that Peter understood everything Jesus was saying. Nowhere does it say that they had no questions about anything Jesus had just said. 
But at the end of the day, what they were left with was this. Where else are we going to go? Because you have the words of eternal life. Here's why I think this is important. As you and I walk with Jesus, we will have some questions. Listen to me. If you ain't got questions when it comes to your theology and what you believe, one of two things is true. I'm convinced. Only two options. Either one, you're just wrong in your theology. And you think you got it all figured out or two, you just haven't mined the depths of scripture deep enough because there are things in this book that are hard. There are truths that are difficult to understand. There are expectations that at times seem unreasonable. I know my own journey of faith. Right? I'll preach to myself. I've read things in this book that have made me so mad that I wanted to throw my Bible across the room. I have read things that made me hold one position one day, switch to another position the next day, and then have no idea what I believe the third day. Right? I've changed beliefs on theological positions. And right now, there are some theological issues that if you asked me what I believed, if I was being honest and not trying to show off, I'd say, I have no idea what to do with this. And if I'm honest, sometimes the Bible can really frustrate me. But at the end of the day, what I'm left with is this truth. Where else am I going to go? I'll tell one story and then I'm gone. I remember earlier on in my faith, it's, a, it's one of those memories that sticks out to me. I was just wrestling. I was wrestling with the Bible. I was in youth group. I was struggling. I didn't know what to believe. It was just frustrating me. It was just frustrating me. Right? I wondered if maybe other religions had some better truth and I could go to that. Right? I was just wrestling with these deep issues. And I remember going to my dad and saying, Dad, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with this. I think the issue was actually God's sovereignty at that time. I think I was wrestling with it. Like trying to figure out what do you mean that like God's in control of all this but people do evil. Like, what do you mean? Like, like, wrestling with that. I was like, man, I don't know if, if that's it. And I remember that he said those words to me. All right, fine. Where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to go? And I remember thinking, he's exactly right. I got questions. I got trials. I got struggles. But at the end of the day, where else am I going to go? He has the word of eternal life. Despite questions and difficulties, despite trials and uncertainties, there is one thing that I know, and I have come to believe and know, that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And if that's true, right, then in every season, through every question, with every doubt, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he has done what he said he would do, if Jesus showed up because God so loved the world and lived the perfect life that I should have lived but can't and died a death in my place, was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead so that I might have eternal life and resurrection, if all the question remains but that's true, I'm going to stick with Jesus. I'm going to stick with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would give us grace to stick with you. Because we will have hardships in our faith. We will have questions that we might not ever get answers to. We will have trials that we might not fully understand the purpose of. We may experience what it means to suffer like you and it be hard. But I pray in those moments you would give us grace to remember that you are who you said you were. You have done what you said that you would do. And that you have the words of eternal life. So God, give us grace to cling to you in the good moments. Give us grace to cling to you in the really hard moments. May it never be said of us, it was too hard. So we walked away. In Jesus' name, amen.